0: Good morning. As Pastor Aaron said, my name is Jacob. My wife, Leith, and I are members of the Riverwood family, and it is a privilege to stand before you today to open the Word of God for you. I'm going to try to ignore the fact that that is my daughter crying back there. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know how you can tell the next 35 minutes of our exploration of another spiritual discipline is going to be awesome? It's because we're going to start by talking about a little bit of math while looking at a picture of my grandma. My grandmother, Joan, was born in 1933 here in the United States, during the height or the depth of the Great Depression. If she were from an average Christian family of that time, her parents would have been donating to their church somewhere around 3.3% of their $1,600 annual income, or a little more than $4 per month. This is equivalent to earning approximately $30,000 a year in today's dollars and giving a little more than $80 per month. My daughter, Ida, the baby in the photo, was born in 2017, also here in the United States, during a decidedly more prosperous time. You want to know a sobering statistic? If she were from an average Christian family, her parents would be earning nearly double what her great-great-grandparents earned, $59,000 a year, yet giving only 2.5% of their annual income to their church, around $125 per month. By the way, I meant to say this at the beginning, you're welcome to move forward. My text is small on the screen, so feel free to slide forward if you want to. I won't be offended if you want to actually sit in the front row. Here's the tweetable version of those facts. Today, American Christians are giving a smaller percentage of their income to the church ...than they did during the Great Depression. Ouch. Doubtless, many of you have heard it said... ...that Jesus talked more about money than about heaven and hell combined. It's true that God's word is chock full of wisdom... ...for how to handle money and possessions. And that's because it is so important... ...yet so difficult to get this right. The inclinations of our flesh get in the way so easily... We have a lot to learn about giving, and I really care about this stuff. In fact, I asked Pastor Aaron if I could preach on giving, on stewardship, on generosity. Not only because I'm passionate about this stuff, but also this message tends to come with less baggage than, uh, if, if it's coming from someone other than the person who's paid by the church. So, let's dive in. Lord, we thank you for this time today. We thank you for the opportunity we have to open your word and to hear from you. Please be in my words. Make them your words, Lord. Anything that's from you, seal it in our hearts. Anything that is not from you, let it fall away, please, Lord. Help me to not get in the way. We love you and we thank you for your wisdom and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's begin with the most important point, the thing that you absolutely must understand about giving, the foundation of everything else we're going to learn from the scriptures today. Let's talk about debt. I'm fascinated by the world of finance, and I'm a follower of Jesus, so of course, I'm a Dave Ramsey fan. I love that so many families. Recently, even some from our own church escaped the bonds of financial struggle by applying the biblical principles presented in Dave's course, Financial Peace University. But all of that is putting the cart before the horse. You see, climbing out of debt through living by wise principles means absolutely nothing if there still exists a hidden debt that no number of baby steps will erase. Each and every human being born on this earth owes a debt we can't pay. It's called sin. It's the offense of an imperfect humanity against a perfect God. In the book of Romans, the the apostle Paul, this is a letter to a church in Rome, and he makes it very clear for them that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every one of us. And he also Instructs us that the wages of sin, the end result, is death, permanent death, and separation from our God. So, what is our response then? Do we work harder, hoping that by the end, our good outweighs our bad? Or maybe we'll get close enough to perfect that it's going to count? By no means continue on to the rest of this verse. Romans 6.23 says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And the amazing Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, but God being rich in mercy Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is an amazing truth. We bring absolutely nothing to the table and have no ability to bring anything. God makes us his children when we put our trust in Jesus Christ solely because of what Jesus did on the cross. So then what? Listen to what Paul writes as the letter to the Ephesians continues. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's the deal. We do these good works that are mentioned here, not as a way to earn the favor of our God, but as a response to the favor he has already lavished on us by his grace. This applies to countless areas of daily living, including how we use the resources God has provided for each of us. So I want to look at three important ways that our perspective has to conform and be transformed to scripture in this realm. If you have your Bibles with you on your phone or a paper copy, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Last week we were in this vicinity in Matthew's gospel, learning about our call to serve. And I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message um, if you haven't had a chance to do that yet. By the way, the ushers are coming forward now. If you need a Bible, feel free to raise your hand. You're going to want to follow along. God's Word is amazing. We're going to begin in verse 7, oh sorry, we're not beginning in verse 17. If you look in chapter 5, verse 17 and continuing on into chapter 6, Jesus starts making people uncomfortable by challenging their preconceptions of righteous living, all with an eye toward pointing his audience toward himself. We're going to pick things up in verse 19 of chapter 6. Matthew 6:19. 6, it's also on the screen if you can read this tiny print. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now skip ahead to verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Then the next section, Jesus is very matter-of-fact in his teaching. Do not be anxious. We are commanded not to worry about the things that usually occupy our thoughts, the cares of this world, food, clothing, basic needs. And the reason we are able to live this way? We have a heavenly Father who cares for us, Jesus provides a couple of examples, in each case, shining light on our foolishness. We don't need to fret, because our God is not just creator of the universe, but also he is the owner of all things. Did you know that? God owns everything. The Bible is full of indications that this is so. In the book of Job, and you don't have to jump around your Bible, I'm going to have the verses on the screen, In the book of Job, chapter 41, God is very succinct. Verse 11 says, Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Just as importantly, nothing happens outside the perfect will of this God who we serve. Listen to how the Lord describes himself in Isaiah, chapter 46, beginning partway through verse 9. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. There's a word for this, and it's the first of our three key words today. I've listened to enough sermons to know that you should have three key points, and they should all start with the same letter so that's what you're getting. That first key word is sovereign. Our God is sovereign. Now, by definition, sovereign means possessing supreme or ultimate power, which makes it one of those funny words that is used to apply to people and and earthly situations, but ultimately actually only applies to God. Throughout the Bible, we see evidence of God's sovereignty from the truth of his prophecies that we read in the Old Testament and that are fulfilled later on, to the ways that he orchestrated the events of history exactly in accordance with his plan. It's amazing to see God's work throughout history. I don't know about you, but I find this aspect of God's character both comforting and incredibly humbling. So what is our relationship to this omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign God who created the universe and owns everything? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 6 as a starting point. Check out what Jesus says in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. He teaches here and in lots of places in the Gospels that God is in the role of master. If we aren't saved from our sin nature by Jesus Christ, then we tend to be mastered by the things of this world. Money, fame, power, the list goes on. These might all be characterized as enslavement to our flesh, enslavement to self. When we're saved, we are rescued from that bondage and become slaves of a different sort. Slaves to God, to his righteousness, as Paul writes in Romans 6. When our lives are transformed in this way, then, we respond as bond servants who have a responsibility to our master. That responsibility is known by a super important word. The second way our perspective has to conform to that of scripture. And that word is stewardship. So what's a steward? Have you thought about this? A steward is one to whose care something has been entrusted, whose task it is to responsibly manage and protect that something. In many of Jesus' parables throughout the Gospels, he teaches about our relationship with our God and our stuff, our stuff, through this lens. God is the master, and we play the part of the steward who is asked to, to manage the affairs of the master while he is away for a time. If we were to summarize what we learn about God through these parables, we could say a few things. First, the master is the true owner of all assets. We talked about this already. He has the right to do with everything as he wishes because he ultimately is the owner of everything. The master is also powerful and authoritative. The master chooses to trust his stewards to manage his resources. He communicates specific expectations of those stewards and rewards them for good stewardship while punishing for laziness and disobedience. And the master is absent for a season, resulting in delayed accountability for his stewards but he will absolutely, certainly, without a doubt, return, and probably when the steward least expects him. In his seminal book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, which is a book that I relied on to find a lot of these scripture passages, and I'm grateful um, to to have read this book, Randy Alcorn, Alcorn sums up this point beautifully. This is a quote from him. When I grasp that I'm a steward, not an owner, it totally changes my perspective. Suddenly, I'm not asking, how much of my money shall I, out of the goodness of my heart, give to God? Rather, I'm asking, since all of my money is really yours, Lord, how would you like me to invest your money today? When I realize that God has a claim not on a few dollars to throw in an offering plate, not on 10% or 50%, but 100% of my money, it's revolutionary. Suddenly, I'm God's money manager. I'm not God. Money isn't God. God is God. It's a total change of perspective. There's the end of the quote. So be honest with yourself could you say what John Wesley said when his home burned to the ground? The Lord's house burned down. That means one less responsibility for me. I don't know if I could say that. But how are we going to get to that point? If we allow the truth of God's word to transform us, we absolutely can. So, We have to recognize God's sovereignty, and we have to understand that we are stewards of his resources. When we're born again, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not only do we receive the title of steward, which results in a changed relationship with God, but we receive the title of sojourner, which results in a changed relationship with the world. A sojourner is one who resides temporarily in a place, a visitor or traveler who is spending significant time somewhere, but is actually from somewhere else. So if you are a follower of Jesus, guess what? You are no longer a United States citizen, despite what your passport says. You are a child of the king of the universe, whose home is not earthly and temporal, but is heavenly and eternal. You are simply visiting here for a time until you die or Jesus returns, whichever one comes first. That visit could last more than 100 years, but those 100 years are less than a fraction of a second on the timeline compared to the rest of eternity. In Philippians chapter 3 verse 20, Paul writes that our citizenship is in heaven Think about how living this way could change everything. If you know where the book of Hebrews is, turn there with me for a moment. Hebrews is kind of two-thirds of the way through the New Testament. Just keep flipping until you find it. In chapter 11 of Hebrews, the writer of the book begins by defining faith as, quote, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And isn't this exactly what we're talking about? It must be by faith that we accept God at his word, trusting that our true home is actually a place we've never been. Hebrews chapter 11 continues with a series of commendations of heroes of the faith from the Old Testament, which is totally worth studying. We don't have time to get into all of it, but Let's skip ahead to verse 13 for a summary. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Wow. That city is your heavenly home. The place where we will spend all eternity after this momentary blip of an earthly sojourn that seems so significant at present. The two things that our sovereign master requires of us during our brief stay here on earth are to receive his free gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and to steward his resources, investing them wisely in his kingdom purposes. We talk about our fist here at Riverwood. Finances, influence, what's the S? Skills and your time. Those are all resources that God gives to us that we would advance his kingdom. And that is our joyful responsibility as followers of Jesus. Still in Hebrews, at the beginning of chapter 12, the writer of the book implores us, after showing us all these examples of the faithful ones who have gone before us, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. For a church our size, we have an unusual preponderance of runners. And even those of you, (laughs) I, I mean size like in number, even those of you who are not runners would instantly know the answer to this question. If you're going to run a marathon, would you choose to do it wearing a backpack with your laptop, a handful of books, and a couple of games inside, carrying a suitcase full of clothes in one hand, and pushing a shopping cart full of great food in the other? No, not a chance. I've done it. It's hard enough to cover 26.2 miles with just the clothes on your back. If you're a sojourner, a traveler who is staying somewhere for a time but isn't really from there, then you avoid putting down roots. You cast off that weight in anticipation of soon returning home and having flexibility to go where your master sends you. You want to know what Jesus says about keeping that eternal perspective of a sojourner? Let's go back to Matthew 6 one more time. Let me paraphrase verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus does not condemn storing up treasures. Do you notice that? He doesn't. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He commands us to store up treasures. The part that we mess up is where we store them. Jesus tells us that we need to store up treasures in heaven where they are eternal. So how do we do this like Jesus instructs us? We honor God's sovereignty and his ownership of everything by acting as stewards of his resources, investing the stuff which he entrusts to us and advancing his kingdom, living as sojourners in order to keep an eternal perspective. We could get deep into the principle of contentment here, and it's well worth a study. I won't, but God's word says a lot about it, and this can help us on our journey toward living this way. I encourage you to consider studying the principle of contentment in God's word. So what does this mean practically? In what ways is your life going to change? How do we apply all of this? I bet you've been waiting for this part where we actually talk about giving, right? No more context. Let me give you some interesting estimates from a March 8, 2016 relevant magazine article by Mike Holmes regarding some of the basic problems that the worldwide church currently faces. How much money do you think it would take in U.S. dollars, and this is obviously an estimate, but how much would it take to completely relieve these four issues altogether. Any guesses? An an unimaginable sum of money? $53 billion. That's a lot of money. Although we talk about billions and trillions now, so maybe it's not such a big deal, but it's a lot of money. Anyone know what tithing is? Tithing is not one of the Christian's four-letter words. Tithing is giving 10% of your income, which comes from God, back to the Lord through his church for use in advancing his kingdom. The word tithe literally means tenth. We're going to get into more details in just a moment, but let's imagine first that we live in a United States where every believer tithes. Every believer gives tenth a tenth of his or her income back to the Lord's work. If we keep everything else at status quo so we don't build new church buildings or raise pastor salaries or send out new missionaries, but we maintain everything with the funding that is currently received by U.S. churches, what kind of dent could we make in that $53 billion with the increase that would come from people beginning to tithe, beginning to give all the way up to that 10%? We can actually cover all of it. And there's actually a little bit left over for domestic ministries, new ministries, caring for our pastors, paying down debt, blessing our communities. That little bit that's left over, $110 billion. That's how far short of tithing we are currently. Now, I'm not suggesting that we can actually solve the world's problems by giving more. Jesus himself said that we will always have the poor with us. And this is still a world with spiritual sickness that can only be healed by spiritual means. Hunger, sanitation, illiteracy aren't the world's issue. Sin is. However, meeting other people's basic physical needs often leads to opportunities to share with them the incredible joy that comes from being freed from sin and reborn to new life in Jesus. If we begin to tithe, the church can more fully live out Jesus' command to care for the poor. So what does biblical tithing look like? God commands his people to bring their first fruits into his house. This doesn't mean hoping that you'll have a tenth of your income left at the end of the month in order to tithe. It means right away, as soon as it comes in, you give, you get to give, 10% back to God, to provide for the ministry of the local church. So why do we do this? We tithe out of obedience with grateful hearts, understanding that we can only follow God's commands as he changes us from the inside out. When we tithe, we are acknowledging that he is the owner of all things. We're also acknowledging God's provision for our daily needs. If he says, and he does say, to give the first tenth back to him, that means that he has provided and will provide enough for us that we can absolutely live on the other 90%, as long as we practice contentment and maintain that sojourning-steward's perspective. We may not have cool toys, live in a nice house, or any house at all. We may not drive the best car or van or eat choice foods. But if the alternative is disobedience, we have to be willing to make those sacrifices. Listen to these strong words from the Lord about tithing from Malachi chapter 3 beginning in verse 8. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, right before Matthew. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. We have to stop robbing God. It's pretty clear to me. So let's start right away with your very next paycheck. Take a tenth of it and give it to the ministry of your local church. If you look down in verse 12 of Malachi chapter 3, we see the end result. You will be a land of delight. How cool is that? Let me suggest something radical to you. What if this week you pulled out your 2017 giving statement from Riverwood and your 2017 tax return? What if you calculated 10% of your total income, line 22 of your 1040, and wrote a check to our church to cover the difference between what you actually gave and the tenth you either intended to give or didn't realize that you should give. If you're short of ten percent, like my wife and I were, that's money that you inadvertently stole from God. And how cool would it be to give it back to Him? There's great joy in this, my friends. Does that sound too calculated? Maybe but we're instructed to give 10%, which is going to require some calculation. And what if you went beyond just looking at your paycheck and calculated the value of your total compensation package? Getting into the weeds a little bit here, but that would probably be even colder and more mathy, right? Absolutely. But would it humble you to see your Heavenly Father's incredible provision for you and your family and give you even greater joy as you transfer more of your earthly treasures to your heavenly account? Absolutely. I know it does for me. Every time I give, every time. Now there are some arguments against tithing that tend to float around evangelical circles. Maybe they're floating around this room right now. Let me try to address some of them with some stock photos. Hey, isn't tithing an Old Testament law thing? Don't we live under grace now instead of the law? You are correct that tithing is indicated in the law. What you might not realize, though, and what I didn't know until I studied for this, is that tithing actually predates the law. In Genesis, we read about Moses and Jacob both tithing. Then we have the law, and then we have Jesus, who gives us new commands, right? Did Jesus ever talk about tithing? he asked rhetorically. Turn to Matthew 23, verse 23. This is Jesus speaking. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. As Jesus loves to do, he pokes holes in the theology of the day by upping the ante. He says, hey, you know what? You're missing the point. The law is about more than just tithing. It's about tithing and the weightier matters like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. We don't get to pick and choose which instructions we obey, especially when they're for our good. Another argument. What about that Bible verse that says, God loves a cheerful giver? If I'm not feeling cheerful about giving, I probably shouldn't give, right? That verse is definitely in there. The mistake, though, is using our feelings to establish our theology. We have to submit to the whole counsel of God's word, and if he says to tithe, we need to tithe, regardless of how we feel about it. If your feelings don't line up with God's written instructions for you, then your feelings are wrong. I've been there. They're rooted in your sinful flesh. So the solution is get back into scripture, obey what it says, and guess what? The feelings often follow. Once you start giving, you will experience the joy in doing so because you will be within the will of God for your life. Here's another thing we hear sometimes. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear I should be tithing. I'm agreeing with you on that. I think I'll Increase at least one and a quarter percent each year so that within five years, I'm giving 10% back to God's work through His local church. Let me ask you something. Imagine you have a friend who is stealing $100 out of your wallet or purse every time she comes over to your house for your weekly neighborhood board game night. You discover this and confront her about it. She says, You know what? You're right, I shouldn't be stealing from you. I'm gonna steal a little bit less each week so that by Labor Day weekend, I'm not stealing from you anymore. I mean, I do have plans for that money. I'm actually working on getting out of credit card debt and my son needs a new calculator for the new school year. We're taking a family trip in a couple weeks and this was going to be our fun money, you know, for coffee, souvenirs and stuff. Is that cool? No! No, it's not cool. And that sounds incredibly illogical, but that's exactly what we are saying to God when we say, you know what, I'm going to work toward that 10%. A fourth argument. Okay, I get all that, but where does grace come in? Aren't we under grace, making tithing legalism? Here's the deal. If you are tithing in order to earn your salvation or to garner favor with God, then yes, absolutely, that is legalism. The solution to that legalism is not to stop tithing. If you're obeying an instruction for the wrong motive, disobedience is not the answer. The answer is to keep tithing because God says we should, because it's good for you, and to ask him to change your heart by his spirit to purify your motives. Ask him to help you maintain a biblical view of who you are, who God is, and how you relate to him. Grace is the thing that allows us to honor God in how we live, not the thing that gives us license to do whatever we want. Tithing is like spiritual training wheels on your giving bike. Kind of a weird metaphor, but stay with me. Tithing is instituted by God to help us flex our giving muscles, as Dave Ramsey likes to say. God makes it simple and clear, and it's a proportion, so it's not onerous. The less you make, the less you give. By tithing, though, we begin to align our hearts with God's ministry, and once you develop the habit, then the fun begins. There's a reason that the Bible differentiates between tithes and offerings, The tithe is required of all God's people for the support of the local church. Offerings are the portion beyond a tithe, given freely as God provides to work for his kingdom. You and your family probably have some favorite ministries just like we do, and those are the ones we have the privilege of supporting through our giving above and beyond a tithe. Did God provide enough income for you to live on 90%? I can say without a shadow of a doubt, with Scripture as our plumb line, yes, He did. But has He, by His grace, blessed you more abundantly? If you can live on 90%, what about 85%? What earthly things, things that ultimately only matter if they are used in service of God's purposes, can you give up, by God's grace, to invest more in eternal things? Could you live on 80%? 70 50 If we were careful to fight against lifestyle creep and instead invested salary raises into God's kingdom, trusting him to help us be content and to provide even for inflationary increases, could we get to a place where we were living on only 25% of our income, giving away 75%? Maybe so. How quickly could we get the Bible translated into every language if we doubled the number of people working on learning those languages and translating scripture into them? How many souls could be saved by the good news of Jesus Christ if we gave everyone access to clean water sharing the story of the living water which comes from Jesus and wells up to eternal life while digging those wells? What would Riverwood Church look like if we committed to this kind of life together? Do you want to join us on that adventure? Let's review. Most importantly, first thing, You have to be saved from sin by God's grace through faith in Jesus. That's the starting point. None of the rest of this matters if you don't have a right relationship with God. After that, we are freed by grace to live according to God's word, which shows us that he is sovereign and we are simply sojourning stewards in relationship to him. One essential way that we obey God's word is through how we use our money. And the starting point for giving for generosity with our financial resources is tithing, which we are all commanded to do. This means simply taking 10% of anything that comes in and giving it back to God, because it's all his anyway. And we can, by grace, choose to be obedient. Beyond that, we may give offerings toward the work of the kingdom. So now what? How are you going to respond? I want each of you to take a moment, write down somewhere on your connection card, on a scrap of paper, on your hand, wherever, write down one thing that you are going to do in response to God's Word. Think about those points we just reviewed. Do you need to get right with the Lord? Do you need to accept the free gift of salvation that He offers to you? Do you need to live as though God is sovereign, recognizing that he is in everything that happens to you? Do you need to be a better steward? Do you need to take better care of God's resources, investing them for his kingdom? Are you too tied to this world? Do you need a more eternal perspective? All of these things, our Lord can change our hearts and help us by his grace to follow his commands. We're all in slightly different places, but let's begin anew this giving adventure as a family with great anticipation of how God will lead and bless his work. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are humbled by your word, by who you are and who we are in relationship to you. Lord, keep the things in our hearts that are from you. Remove the things that are not and help us by your grace to honor you with how we use the financial resources you have blessed us with. We love you. We thank you for your wisdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.